Hi everyone, welcome back to the Planet Podcast and today we'll be joined by Noemi Knight who wrote a wonderful children's book called Popoto, the Maui Dolphin. Welcome Noemi, glad you can join us today. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I, I, I must admit that I had never heard of the Maui Dolphin, so how come that you, you chose uh, him or her or the Maui dolphin as as the theme for your book. Okay, um, I will admit that uh, when I first looked them up, I had never heard of them either. How I rediscovered them was back in the 1980s. Uh, my grandparents had taken me to Auckland, New Zealand uh, for vacation, and they had taken a series of photos of us out on the water with some dolphins. And so Decades later, I went back home to the States last year to help with my parents' household, and me and my kids were digging through some boxes, and we found, we we rediscovered these old photos, and I looked at them, and I remembered seeing them, but I couldn't recognize what the dolphins were. My son kept asking me, what kind of dolphins are these? And they were really unusual looking. They're tiny. They had the rounded dorsal fin. They call it the Mickey, Mira, the Mickey Mouse ear dorsal fin. And uh, so I looked it up because I wasn't sure what they were either. And that's when I discovered that they were the Maui dolphins. And in those days, there must have been many more than there are today because there's a lot of problems around the Maui dolphins. They're, they're close to extinction, I believe. Is, is the, what's, what's the situation and, and what was it in those days? Uh, yes, back in the 1980s, 90s, there are a lot more Hectors and Maui dolphins. Um, there's two of them, actually. The Hectors dolphins live on the South Island, where the Maui dolphins live on the North Islands of New Zealand. Um, and they are uh, similar, but genetically different. So they, they can't interbreed. Um, they are both endangered. The Hectors dolphins has around five to 6,000 remaining dolphins, um, while the Maui dolphins are down to less than 60 dolphins. Wow, that's terrible. I think last time we spoke, it was a little bit above 60. So we're even below 60 now. That seems to to be a, a very difficult situation. Why why are they why are their numbers going down so much? Um, unfortunately, uh, there's been a few deaths. Um, I think when we last spoke, is at 64, so it is now around 60 because they've had a few dolphin deaths. Um, and the main cause of that is a fishing nets. The fishing industry, um, they go after the same foods that the Maui dolphins eat. They, they eat codfish, uh, squid, crabs, and the crabs and the codfish that the Maui dolphin eats are also the same that humans eat for consumption. So fishermen go out there and they put out the ghost nets and the gill nets are especially dangerous for the dolphins. And they put them in the areas where these dolphins live. And so unfortunately, the dolphins, they get caught in them. And because these nets aren't checked daily, they get caught in them and they, unfortunately they, they drown. Because dolphins need oxygen, they're mammals, so they need to get above the water surface every half hour or so, or uh, quite frequently, I suppose. Uh, even more so for these dolphins because they are very small. Um, unlike other species of dolphins, these dolphins are only around, I think, 50 kilos um, so I think that's uh, 112, 115 pounds for uh, Americans. And then they're only about 1.5 meters long. So it's about four and a half feet. So the size of an average 11 to 15 year old kid. 
Um, and because they're so small and they're coastal dolphins, they breathe more often than like, say, bottlenose dolphins that people are more familiar with. Um, they come up to breathe every four to five minutes. So if they oh, get yeah. entangled in a net, it's far more dangerous for them than many others. I mean, they're all fatal, but for them, it's especially critical that people are able to get them cut out and freed from these nets. So what is what is the government doing, the, the New Zealand government? Are they taking any measures or is are they treating this as a kind of lost case? What's, what's, what's happening? Uh, they do have measures in place. Um, right now, one of the big pushes is the, um, the 100 meter project. And the idea is that there's not supposed to be any nets cast um, less than 100 meters from the coast. Because since these dolphins are small and they come up for air more often, they're not deep divers. They don't go down as far as other dolphins do. Um, so they, they tend to stay up closer to the surface. They don't go beyond 100 meters depth. I think that's around 365 feet deep. Um, so they they don't, you know, they, they stay near the surface. So because of that, they're trying to ask fishers to stay further from the coast um, and to check their nets more often, and that if they find dolphins, to report that they found them. Because the other issue is they don't always get reported, so we can't always be certain of the numbers either. Yeah. And are these new measures, are they effective, or is this already going on for years and still not helping? It's been going on for quite a few years, and sometimes it seems to help, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but the biggest problem is that the fishing industry is in conflict with tourism, which is in conflict with conservationist organizations like New Zealand Well and Dolphin Trust. And so the biggest thing is just trying to mediate between these groups because we need to protect the dolphins. At the same time, they need the tourism to help bring in the funds to protect dolphins. And then, you know, New Zealand's one of their biggest um, their biggest money makers is their fishing industry. So the fishermen, they feel pressure to bring in more fish. And then that means that they go out and they put more nets out. And then that puts the dangers and the danger on the dolphins even more. Yeah, that's a story we see all over the world. Uh, it reminds me of the story of Iceland where... Which is a kind of positive story. They were they still they were one of the few countries in the world that still had a whaling industry. There's there's two companies still doing whaling, and both companies have now decided that they stop whaling for the simple reason that it's it's commercially not interesting anymore. And at the same time, it's because tourists love to come and and see the whales. So, as a tourism industry becomes it becomes more important than than as uh, as a food industry so that is a trend that i hope we will see something of today is it only fishing or is it also other sorts uh, things like climate change and pollution or other factors that are playing a role yes uh, climate change definitely plays a role um there's been a lot more storms around the polynesian islands you know which directly affects uh, marine life and especially dolphins you get heavy winds you get heavy waves it makes it harder for surface swimming dolphins to come up to breathe um, and then you get beachings things like that uh, it does happen even the maui dolphins a few have been found on beaches um, and then of course the pollution is another issue uh, plastics in the waters when you know the plastic styrofoam gets in the water it breaks down to microplastics which the fish eat and then which the dolphins eat, and then also humans are eating it. So the plastic is a huge deal for everybody, not just marine life, but people as well. 
And then the other issue that they've realized is uh, the disease taxoplasmosis is actually affecting these mammals. And uh, there's been evidence that it causes miscarriage in humans, the handling of cat feces, um, taxoplasmosis disease that specifically cats carry. And while there's a lot of cats on the islands and when they urinate in the ground and then rainwater washes it off into the ocean, uh, the taxoplasmosis has been surviving in the ocean water and it's been affecting the dolphins. And they've had evidence of a few miscarriages from Maui dolphins directly from taxoplasmosis. Oh, wow. And that's a very difficult one to stop, of course, because you will have the cats and you will have to run off to, to the oceans. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's it's. I know that it's the same for humans. When uh, women are pregnant, the very first thing that the doctor tells them is don't don't clean the cat litter anymore. So it seems that they are just as, as vulnerable for this as um, as humans are. That's... That's a sad story in many ways, and what I found in your in your book, which I can really recommend to everyone, it's a beautifully illustrated uh, children's book, and and it's it's um, it's a lovely story, and even though it's a very sad story, I, I think one of the good um, one of the challenges you you overcome overcame successfully is that it's still a lovely book to read for kids instead of just uh, a very sad tone of, of a species dying out. I can imagine that must have been a challenge for you in, in writing the story in such a way that you can, that you can tell it to smaller children. Yeah, it was a challenge. Um, but I wanted to keep in mind that, you know, it's for children. And even though I wanted them to know the issues and the dangers that are happening, Um, the challenges that Maui dolphins face, that all marine life faces, honestly, because it's not just the Maui dolphins affected by these things. It's all marine life. Um, But I wanted to keep it positive, as Eric Solheim said, stay the green optimism. I loved that interview, by the way, to be optimistic about things. And so more importantly, I I wanted to stay positive with this book. So Popto focuses on the dangers facing the Maui dolphins, but since it's a kid's book, I also wanted to keep that positivity, that we can do things. I, I didn't want to focus so much on the bad things. I wanted them to be aware of them, to be realistic about them. But I also wanted to be friendly and inviting. So I have a few pages that talk about the biggest threats, which is the overfishing and the pollution. Um, and one of the images shows a Maui dolphin caught in a net. Um, but he does get out of it. And But I wanted to focus on that. The pollution from plastics and discarded nets were some of the biggest threats, especially the gill nets and set nets. Um, and they're notorious for bycatch, for dolphins, sea turtles, sharks being the most common fatalities. Um, but again, I wanted to focus on the positive, that green optimism that Eric Solheim talked about. So first, you know, that the numbers can still be recovered. I mean, we are up from... 40 to roughly 60 Maui dolphins and around 5,000 hectares dolphins. So they are recovering. And then second, that we can stop further damage from happening. It isn't hopeless. Um, We can stop this from happening. We can reverse these things and that kids can help do these things. Yeah. And that story of optimism is, is so important. And uh, I, I always try to share it as well. And it's, I'm not sure if you also heard the interview with uh, Michael E. Mann, uh, which was just a couple of days after Eric Solheim. And uh, although he's a, he's probably the most famous climate scientist in the world, and, and he knows exactly how bad uh, the situation with climate change is, but he also had this story of optimism saying, well, 
climate change is a huge thing and it's it's really really threatening but we know how to solve it and we can solve it we have the technology we can financially do it we have the knowledge to do it uh, the only thing that is missing is the political will to to get that far and um, so I, I love these stories of, of optimism, which with whales, for instance, in the, the humpback whales have really uh, recovered significantly. So that's the, the big, big brother of, uh, of, the, of the Maui dolphin. And, uh, and I think the numbers of going from in the 40s to the 60s, that is, that is a 50% increase, although the absolute numbers are, of course, really, really small and, uh, and vulnerable. What I also like in the book, also talking about green optimism, is that in the end of the book, you mention all kinds of things that kids can do. And that's that's an aspect that I like a lot, that it's not just you just consume the story and you throw the book away, but it, it ends with a story, well, everybody can make a change and it, it starts with yourself. And I think it's, it's good to learn that um, for children at a very young age. And where... Um, yeah, could, could you mention a few of the things where, where you end up in the book with the, the advice that you give to kids? Oh, yeah. Some of the advice that I give the kids, um, it was um, to make the switch to reusable bags, reusable straws, because straws are probably one of the biggest things they find floating in the ocean all the time. So make the switch to reusable straws, reusable bags, um, things that you can organize a cleanup day at your school, your neighborhood, even your backyard. Um, you can lead by example. Leading by example by adults and children is probably the biggest thing because kids, you know, they learn from seeing what adults do. So if they see you making these changes, they're going to do them too. So lead by example by sorting your trash, make a compost heap, switch off lights, turn off your computers, equipment, TVs. Don't just leave them running all day. That That's a bad habit that I see a lot of kids have these days where they'll just leave their computers running all day long. Um, and then they can do things like write to people, the White House, New Zealand Parliament, um, anybody and everybody that you can think of, uh, influencers, anyone that you can think of, tell them why you care and why they should care too. And these are just some of the things that kids can do. And kids are a really creative bunch. I know I, I have two of my own. Um, so I know that, that the book is just a stepping stone, that they can come up with even more ideas on their own on how to keep our planet clean and safe. And that was the biggest message was that I wanted to be positive and I want Pope Toe to inspire and excite them into doing great things and to just be optimistic about everything, to not look at all the bad things that are going on in the world, not look at all the damage that has been done, but instead look towards the recovery we've already made, the steps that we are taking that we can take to make things better. Yeah, yeah, excellent. And it's it's good to it's also a good lesson for young kids that you can learn to um, to influence uh, policy making. And uh, you can, you, as you say, you can write to, to the White House, you can write to the New Zealand Prime Minister. And it's, it's uh, good to learn that you have influence, that you have a voice, that you can make a change. And which is certainly something that this generation of, of Greta Thunberg is, is doing. And I, it's, it's, it's good to encourage them. So it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful element in your book. Um, something I was wondering in how... Does someone start writing a children's book? What what is what is your own journey? Where did you, um, if you really trace back to the beginning, where's the first start uh, in your life that finally end up to you writing a children's book? 
Okay, it's a long story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'll try to make it not too very long. Um, But when I was a kid, I always loved animals. Um, My mom loved animals. My dad loved animals. I grew up around a lot of animals, not just pets either. When I was in middle school, I volunteered at the Clinch River Raptor Center in Clinton, Tennessee. And while I was there, I learned how to rehabilitate animals. endangered raptors like red hawks um owls various animals like that i got to go out there and feed them work with them and then after they were rehabilitated we would take them out and release them back into the wild uh for a while there i also volunteered at the knoxville zoo where i was also an animal handler again working with rehabilitation Uh, mainly i worked with things like box turtles um leopard geckos uh we had a couple european hedgehogs (laughs) that someone gave to us to care for and that were eventually rehabilitated. And so I've just always been around animals. And so as I was growing up, I wanted, I knew for certain that I wanted to work with animals, that I wanted to be a veterinarian or anything that ended in ologist. (laughs) So I was obsessed with dinosaurs. So for a while I wanted to be a paleontologist and now I was obsessed with bugs. So I wanted to be an entomologist. I, everything that I could think of. And, uh, but as I grew up, I realized that I had some shortcomings. Um, I don't like to call them that, but back in the eighties and nineties, um, uh, schools weren't as forgiving. Um, we found out um, it was around fourth grade when I started realizing um, that I had some problems with mathematics. And uh, by the time I was in fifth grade, uh, I had been diagnosed with dyscalculia. Um, and dyscalculia is a learning disability that affects specifically math. So I have problems with telling time, um, doing any type of math problems, especially long division gave me a problem, multiplication gave me issues, things like that. Um, so that really held me back in a lot of types of things that I wanted to do. Um, you can't really go into the science fields without being at least good at some basic mathematics. Um, but I never got that far. And so when I finally decided that I wanted to go to college, I realized I couldn't. Um, because my math and because of moving so much, because my parents were dual military, so we moved a lot around the world, and I fell behind And when I graduated from high school, it was a special education diploma. Um, Unfortunately, special education diplomas aren't accepted in most colleges or military service or any of that. Um, So that helped me back a lot. And so I ended up working um, one of my first jobs. It was a fast food place. They work with chicken. (laughs) I'll just say that. I won't Mm -hmm. say their name. They work with chicken, though. Um, And my, uh, my old high school math teacher actually found me there. And, you know, she she knew that I was passionate about doing other things. So she arranged for me to basically go back to school to get me a tutor. Um, and then she put in for me to get assistance to. So I was allowed to use a calculator and get extended time for our state exams. And so a few years later, I finally graduated high school with an official diploma. So I was 22 before I actually got my high school diploma. And uh, at that time, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I joined the military. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I served uh, four years in the U.S. Army. And uh, by the time I got out of the U.S. Army, I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to work with animals. But at the same time, um, when I went to college, um, I couldn't make the mass placements for it. So I, I still wasn't able to do that. So instead, because I had interest in foreign languages, I instead went with Japanese. So I got my bachelor's degree in Japanese. So I can learn Japanese, but I couldn't do math. (laughs) 
That's amazing. <laughs> I, I would I would say that most people in the world would say it's the other way around. You know, you can you can you can do a bit of math, but learning Japanese that wow, that's a real challenge. Yeah. yeah so yeah, it, it was. It, it's just it's one of those weird things with uh, with the dyscalculia and with ADHD. Um, the ADHD, I was able to really focus on learning Japanese, um, but the dyscalculia made it just impossible for me to maintain the math skills because I could learn something and within a matter of hours it, it would be gone it, it would be like I'd never learned it and so I went ahead and I, I got the Japanese and then I decided that you know I, I would use that to try and travel the world some more um, but I realized I couldn't do that on just Japanese alone so I went ahead and I got my master's degree in teaching English as a second language and they didn't require me to take any math so that was good. <laughs> no math for that. It was two. It was an extra two years on top of my bachelor. So, and it was just focusing on English, phonetics, phonology, um, grammar, all those things. And uh, so, I got my master's in teaching English as a second language. And while I was doing that, um, I did a lot of tutoring in. Uh, in the uh, the library and with the Foreign Student Association. And so I realized that I actually really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the teaching aspect of it, um, working with both adults. And then I also tutored some children that lived in the area. And so I decided to go ahead and also get my um, kindergarten to 12th grade teaching licensure. And so after I got that, I ended up working in public schools. So I worked as a teacher in public schools for four years. Um, before I got married and had my kiddos and then, uh, <laughs> and then we moved overseas. So, <laughs> but, uh, so I now homeschool my son, um, because he has special needs. And so while I was working with him, um, I started teaching him a lot of these types of things that I liked because he has a great interest in animals himself. He loves sharks. He is, uh, he is the shark master. <laughs> you can ask him anything about sharks and he could probably tell you. And so when we went back home and we found those photos of me with the dolphins, um, that's what started the idea for writing a book. Yeah. Wow. Wow. What, what a story. I'm very, very impressed with uh, all, all these challenges that you had overcome because it would have been so easy to you know, keep selling chicken after the counter and say, I'm not good at learning and, and just leave it as at that. And, and that would have been your life. And then picking it up again, going back to high school, finishing it at the age of 22, and then going up all the way to everything you've done after that, your bachelor's, your master's, etc. I think that is that is fascinating. And it's also my praise for the teacher that's found you there in that fast food restaurant and 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 saw the potential and the person and 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 got you out of there and it's, teachers are so important uh and i've i've heard more stories like this and i'm always very impressed i was just last week i was uh no it's actually this weekend i was i was on the line with a friend of mine he's a writer he writes for new york times or washington post and and he's he's a He's a journalist. We both live here in Ottawa. We sometimes meet up. And we were talking about a similar thing that um, he has. We, we both have a kind of dyslexia. I have all kinds of normal words that I have no idea how to write it. I cannot tell you whether a word like uh, discussion, whether that has one or two S's. But mm -hmm. I'm a diplomat. I've been, done discussions all my life. I write the word maybe three times a day. And I still don't know how to spell it, so I'm, 
I'm very happy with Spellcheck. That saves, <laughs> saves my life and makes it possible to be a writer. And he's got a different problem, also kind of dyslexia. That let's say a letter like the B and the D, he can. It's how do you say it in English? It, it mirrors for them, so he doesn't see the difference between a B and a D. And just by for the rest being, you know, normally well educated and intelligent, you can use tricks to work around these kind of handicaps. So. Um, I, I swear by uh, working with uh, modern-day spell checks like uh, Grammarly. And for him, it's just by being intelligent and understanding the context of something that's written, he realizes whether it should be a B or a D. Um, and he had a few more of those kind of examples. I, I think it's fascinating how uh, people uh, can can live with challenges. And what he said, and I thought that was interesting, and I never thought about it, he referred to uh, studies that have been done that kids that uh, grow up with such a kind of handicap, that when they overcome it, that in many fields they score better uh, than their peers just because they had to overcome this challenge. So all kinds of other skills were much more triggered and stimulated to develop further, uh, to uh, to to work around it. And I I can imagine that may have been the case for you as well. Oh yeah, um, like for instance, uh, when I was in elementary and middle school, um, not as much in high school because it was a different school. Um, I was uh, I was what they called um, twice exceptional because they knew I had the learning disabilities, um, but my art I was considered gifted and talented in artwork. Um, I didn't illustrate my own children's book because I can't do kid friendly drawings. Like I can't make cartoon type characters, um, but I did a lot of painting and sculpting um, things like that, and I won a few awards. Um, but I never pursued that as a career. For me, it was more of a, I do it to relax. And so I didn't want the pressure of having to create art for other people. I wanted to be able to do it for myself. Um, and then my son right now, he, like, like I said, he can tell you anything about sharks. It's his thing. He, he loves sharks. He watches everything. He's watched a bazillion documentaries about them. He doesn't care what kind of shark it is. Um, but getting him to read or write is like pulling teeth. He, he cannot do it. He doesn't like doing it. Um, he, he has a similar issue to what your friend does where he, uh, he has a hard time recognizing letters B, D, L, I. Um, they look similar to him. And so he has a hard time. And so he gets embarrassed when he's writing and he doesn't want to write it. Um, which is some of the issues that he had in school, which is one of the other reasons why we chose to homeschool him was for his special needs and then also with the COVID issues. Um, but he has similar issues, and I, it's either dyslexia or dyspraxia. That's the other one. I'll, I'll have to look up the difference again because I don't remember. Um, but, yeah, it is amazing because uh, kids, they, they have a lot of adaptations to make up for that. Um, sometimes we call them... Um, we call them the invisible disabilities because you can't see them because it's not a physical disability, but it's still there. They're just really good at covering it up. We call it masking where they're able to cover up that they have the disability. Yeah. It's what I did at high school, by the way. It was never, ever discovered that I had that problem. They said I had terrible handwriting uh, and that I made a lot of spelling mistakes, but it was just seen as something stupid. But I was lucky to be at, let's say, the highest level of high school and everything else, and therefore I had the ability to 
use other words. If I would have been at a lower level, they would have tested me differently. And you would you get tests like you have to, to write down the following words. And then I would score terribly. But since I was at a higher level, I could um, I got different kind of tests. They say write an essay about the following issue. And that gave me enough freedom to, to work around it. But it, it's, it's, it's fascinating how... Um, how people with uh, some kind of disability, and I've met so many in my life, that they they often come stronger out of this uh, challenge. I, I used to live in a student house. We had eight boys together in my student days. And one of them was dyslectic to a level that I've never, ever seen with anybody else. He, he had difficulties writing, writing his own name and... The worst problem was when somebody called up with, in those days, of course, of course, just one central telephone for everybody on, on, on uh, connected to the wall. And then somebody called up and said, uh, well, can you ask Alexander to uh, to call back at the following number? And then he had to write down that number. And then there was just a complete mix-up of sixes and nines and, and the order of the number. And he then always voluntarily suggested a few other options of what the number could have been, but we mostly ended up calling all kinds of uh, the wrong people. Um, he later became a lawyer and had a had a good job. So he 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 managed to uh, to do that as well. So these are um, I always love these kind of uh, success stories, and I think you should be really proud of yourself uh, what you did. You you mentioned the illustrations; um, those are wonderful. Who made them? Because I know that you didn't make them. No, I didn't make them. Uh, thankfully, I met an amazing artist on Instagram. His name is Alvin Adhi. Um, if anyone wants to check him out on Instagram, it's at A-L-V-I-N underscore A-D-H-I, Alvin Adhi. Um, and I'd actually followed his art for a couple of years, um, but I didn't know that he did children's books. I've just seen his illustrations uh, because people would commission him to draw pictures of their pet fish or other animals. And so originally I thought, well, I'm this unknown author. He probably wouldn't want to work with me because he has a lot of followers and people seem to know him pretty well. So I looked at other artists originally, but every time he would post something on Instagram, I would look at it and be like, oh, I love this art so much. This this would be perfect for my book because it's it's just gorgeous and he, he specializes in doing underwater art. And so my husband went ahead and he told me, well, why don't you just send him a message and just see? I mean, what's the worst he can do? Say no. So I was like, okay. So I went ahead and I sent the message and it only took about a day. A day later, he sent back and said that he was open for commissions. Uh, what was my idea? So I went ahead and I sent him my script and uh, the, my manuscript. And at that time, it was really long. <laughs> I needed to shorten it because I was still trying to work out getting all those facts shorted down to, you know, kid-friendly bits. And uh, he looked at it, though, and he was like, I absolutely love this. I would love to do the work for you. And I said, yeah. okay, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. That's, uh, it's, well, it, it worked out wonderfully well. And I, I can also imagine the challenge you must have had when you know so much about the dolphin that you have to bring it back to uh, to, to small chunks that uh, the children uh, can uh, can can read. Um, this was your first book. It's it's just coming out. I think we should uh, soon talk about your Kickstarter campaign. But before we go there, um, 
if this becomes a success, and it should be, because uh, in before we went live, I just said, and I, I'll repeat that for everybody listening, that if I would search for a children's book and would see this uh, in a bookshop, uh, this would be the one that I pick. And it's 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 really really it's it's a beautiful story. It's well told. It's beautifully illustrated. So it's uh, it's it's a great book. But this is your first one. What are what are the next plans? There are so many species dying out. We I think we lose uh, more than one species an hour. So there's <laughs> there's lots of work for you uh, to uh, to focus on. Will the next one be about animals as well as uh, threatened species or unique species? What what do you have in mind? Yes, um, I have in mind to do. I'd like to do as many books as I can. Honestly, <laughs> I'm hoping to pick as many as I can. Uh, my first, I did for the next book. I took a vote between the hawksbill sea turtle and the oxalotl. Um, the oxalotl won because my son gave him a huge vote, and then my mm-hmm. husband thought it would be great too, and a bunch of other people did because most people know what oxalotls are, um, but they don't know that they're actually critically endangered in the wild. They're used to seeing them as pets, but in the wild, there's less than a thousand of them, and they only live in one place in Mexico. Okay, wow. I didn't know that either. So, yes, uh, I, I've heard about them. I know what they look like. Uh, they're, they're, they're amazing creatures. Uh, but I didn't know that they were so threatened in the wild. So they live only in one more place. That's some kind of cave or something, or where, where do they live? Uh, it is a lake. I cannot pronounce the name of it, so I'm not going to try, honestly. Um, but if you look up the oxalotls, you'll find uh, they only li- they used to live in two different lakes. Um, but the one lake, one of the lakes was unfortunately it was filled up with dirt, so they could use it to build a housing complex. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so there's only one left now. Um, yeah. And part of the reason why they're endangered isn't just the loss of habitat, but also because they're being used for research because of their regenerative capabilities. Yeah. Um, so they're being used in lab experiments to um, to regenerate organs and things like that. So a lot of them get picked up out of the wild so that they can send them to labs. Oh, gosh. So that's, that's a bit like a child destroying its toy to find out how the toy is working. It's it's that's 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 a horrible story. Yeah. Uh, yeah g- go for this one. It sounds like. Uh, it sounds like a very good uh, good next book also to, to create more awareness. And uh, I learned about them in, in uh, biology class at school. I still remember uh, the teacher. I still remember her name, actually, that, uh, that, was, that was talking about these amazing uh, creatures. And um, so, yeah, that would be an interesting one. So um, on... On your uh, on your book, you you started a Kickstarter campaign. How how does that work? How does one start a Kickstarter campaign? Okay, well, starting a Kickstarter campaign is uh, the process itself is pretty easy. Um, you uh, you write your story, you submit your images, you create your reward tiers, um, and you actually have to submit it to Kickstarter. Um, because they don't let every project through. It has to have been well-written, and it looks like it might be something that would get funded. And if it looks good to their team, then they'll approve it. Um, so sometimes they'll kick it back until you know you need more work, and then you'll have to work, and then they'll let you resubmit it. I think if they deny it more than two or three times, then you can't try to use it anymore. Um, okay. they, they won't let you resubmit it. So it's not an everybody can do it thing. You have to make sure that you know for sure what your product is, 
why you're using Kickstarter, um, and that you include all that specific information and images in the Kickstarter. Um, so thankfully, mine was approved really quickly um, because I I had made sure I had all of my illustrations and the book. Like the book, it's ready to go. It's ready to publish. Once it gets funded, I'm going to send the images to the printers and get it published. Um, so that was the biggest thing was that all the illustrations had already been completed. So they they approved it pretty quickly. Um, is, is there a minimum amount that you that you need before you can start printing? Yes. Uh, for my Kickstarter, I chose $4,000 because that covers all the printing, all the main printing. Um, anything else that I need extra will come out of pocket. I, I just wanted to aim for $4,000 just to cover the heavy lifting of the printing because the printing and the shipping the books is the most expensive part yeah. um, because we've already paid for illustrations. We've already paid for the extras like bookmarks. Um, uh, I have the cute little collectible pins that are only going to be available to backers on the Kickstarter. So once those are gone, those are gone. Um, and then uh, things like uh, the worksheets. And then I'm also putting together a teacher's curriculum to go with it so that teachers that purchase it, um, that purchase the teacher packages, will also have a curriculum guide so that they can use it in their classroom. And so that would be really helpful because I know when I was a teacher and I was using children's books, it was always tough if you had to come up with a curriculum for it yourself because there wasn't one available. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, it sounds like like an amazing package for, uh, I would say, a, a very doable amount of money. So I, I really hope that, uh, that that you'll get there. How can people find you on the Kickstarter? There's probably a, a link, and I will I will add that to uh, to tweets and, and to this uh, to this um, uh, to on, on my Substack, and I will add it to. Um, uh, on on call in if I can manage to add that link I'm not really sure I never added a link to it but I guess that should be possible but if people just go to Kickstarter they just type Popoto is 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 that an easy way to find it? Yes, if they go to the Kickstarter they can type in Popoto um, it was chosen as a project we love so it is on the front page of Kickstarter now um, so that's a good thing it got the badge for projects we love which means um, they keep it on their front page and they will actively include it in emails that they send to people um, but you can also find it with a link thankfully I made a short pretty link um, and it's bit.ly slash Popoto KS so B-I-T period L-Y forward slash P-O-P-O-T-O-K-S. And so oh, if you type that in, you should be able to find it. Wonderful. Well, I'll, I'll add it also to uh, to the podcast. I'm, I'm sure that I can do that. Um, yeah, I can. I, I really hope this is going to work because it's 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 a wonderful book and it should, uh, it should be read worldwide. I mean, I, I wish that, you know, uh, school libraries would, would, would all have this, uh, this book for their kids. That would be, uh, that would be wonderful. Um, if there's any question from the audience, uh, the, those that are on iPhone, uh, they can uh, they can ask uh, questions. Uh, those that are listening uh, via the website uh, can not yet do that, um, but I believe that soon uh, that uh, that should that option should be available as well, and um, the app will also soon be available uh, on Android. Uh, I was told that that would happen somewhere in February, so. Uh, that should be uh, soon, but I don't see any uh, other questions from the audience. Are there things that uh, that you would love to touch upon that I didn't cover in my questions? Um, uh, I want to talk about Kickstarter a little more, just to remind people um, that Kickstarter is not a charity. So if the book doesn't get funded, um, 
then I don't get any of the funds. So if you do support it, um, but then it doesn't get the funding amount, you don't have to worry. Uh, you, you keep your money. <laughs> so just so people know that because uh, a few people have asked me about that. Um, and then I also want to remind people that uh, the New Zealand Well and Dolphin Trust uh, had a huge hand in me writing this book. Uh, when I reached out to them about it and sent them my initial draft and images, um, they provided me with a lot of information on the Maui dolphins. Most of what I learned came from them. They sent me a lot of pamphlets. They sent me an entire PDF book about them. Uh, Liz Sluton, who is the head of their research and who is the foremost expert of Maui Dolphins New Zealand, she provided me a lot of information herself. Uh, so because of that, uh, $1 of every pledge is going to go directly to the New Zealand Well and Dolphin Trust to support their research um, because it's invaluable research that they're doing um, because these little dolphins, they, they really need the help. So I wanted to make sure that most of my pledges go to that as well. <laughs> oh, that is that is really wonderful. So uh it's uh I'll I'll see if I can uh, mention them as well. Okay, I uh I, I want to thank you for this interview. I think what you've created is beautiful. I think your story is beautiful. Your 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 own journey that you made uh to uh to to overcome the challenges and um and now end up uh, being in the Planet podcast and telling about your first book uh after all that you have experienced. And I really, really hope that uh, people that will listen to this podcast or people that will read about you uh, will support you because this is uh, this is really a good spending of your money. It should be a good Valentine's gift as well that uh, people uh, um, uh, give somebody else uh, the present of being part of a Kickstarter. So who knows, that might uh, inspire people uh, as well. Thank you so much. Uh, we will stay in touch. By the way, stay on the Zoom call, then, uh, then, then, uh, then I can still talk to you after the show. But I okay. will now um, end uh, this room. Uh, for those that are listening, uh, I'll be back next Thursday, 3 o'clock Eastern Time. That is noon Pacific Time, and that is uh, 9 o'clock in the evening in most of Europe, uh, because then I'll be... Uh, in the other show, in the news, news, the bigger picture, uh, together with Alistair Doyle, where we look back at uh, the uh, news of last week. Uh, there might be something else coming up, but if that uh, happens, then I'll um, I'll report it through the normal channels, both on call in and on Twitter, as well as on Instagram. Thank you so much uh, for listening. I hope to see you back on Thursday. And Noemi, thank you so much. I do hope that Popoto, uh, the Maui dolphin, will become a huge success and that many children in the world will enjoy the book. Thank, Thank you, you very now. much. Bye-bye.